This podcast is brought to you by Iman Publishing, Canada's leading independent legal publisher. Welcome to the Lawyer's Lounge, a criminal law-focused podcast. Wherever you are, whenever you are, the Lawyer's Lounge is always open. Come on in. Hey, Lisa told me to tell you this. We are not your lawyer. The Lawyer's Lounge is an entertainment podcast and is not legal advice. Great second episode coming up for you today. First, Lisa and I discuss our own personal COVID-19 updates. We have a little bit of quick fire on various issues. And most importantly, we have star, Toronto star, legal reporter, Jacques Gallant. Enjoy. Lisa, it's April 8th, and uh, I was hoping you can bring us up to speed in terms of where the courts are on shutdown, electronic hearings, and so on, and in Ontario, at least. Yeah, I mean, we've seen quite a bit of change since the last time we spoke. Uh, I know last time we talked, we were talking about things maybe going full remote, and it does seem like that's where we are now. Uh, The Ontario Court of Justice has finally moved to a fully remote model. Uh, Crown attorneys are not going into the courts. I think no one's going into the courts right now. There are still some places where I think it's lagging a little behind on that front, but by and large, everybody is now doing things by phone and by video. And there's been a huge change in terms of having email addresses for the courthouses, email addresses for the Crown attorneys' offices, and we're trying to do everything electronically. Um, I know it's been a, a, t- a challenging couple of weeks for people who are not maybe as tech savvy. Uh, The Court of Appeal in Ontario, I think it was yesterday or the day before, announced that everyone needs to start filing electronic factums with hyperlinks to online case law, uh, which I think for some people is a brand new thing. So uh, it's a time of transition for all of us. And also, I think the courts are working really hard to be able to support us working entirely remotely when we've never done that before. Um, Have you had to do anything remotely yet? Any electronic hearings or e-hearings, I guess, whatever we want to call them? Yeah, so, so far I've I've had the opportunity to do one electronic hearing, was yesterday actually, and uh, it was a very strange, almost surreal experience. (laughs) In my case, the the judge was in the courtroom, as was court staff, and both the Crown and I and my client participated by teleconference. Uh So that was the setup. Um, There was, you know, in terms of technical issues, there was a a distracting echo on the line that I had to contend with. Um, But, you know, it was a really good opportunity to uh, reflect on, you know, the, the tools in my advocacy arsenal. And I don't know that I was totally conscious on how much I relied on my physical body being in court (laughs) as part of of my overall advocacy style. I mean, I am uh, a pretty big lady. I'm 5'8", and when you uh, strap on the standard issue Hannon Hutchison stilettos, it's it's pretty tall, uh, and I'm pretty broad, and I, I, I think that I use my kind of imposing stature effectively uh, in a physical courtroom. And to not have that uh, was a bit sad yesterday for me, frankly. On the other hand, you know, in terms of positives, 
The court had indicated to us prior to the hearing that they wanted to hear very focused short submissions and told us that they would cut us off if we went longer than our allotted time. And, um, you know, I think that both the Crown and I exercised more discipline than we would have otherwise, uh, given the format. And, you know, I think it made for a very focused hearing. So uh, that's a lesson that I hope to kind of carry forward uh, into my next uh, project. Um, but, you know, it, for sure it was weird. And, and obviously the biggest problem um, or hurdle that I foresee is the ability to communicate with the client through the hearing. You know, if he's in another location, um, uh, phoning in, then you don't have that easy, ready access to him uh, or even to sense whether there's, you know, does he understand what's going on? Does he uh, need uh, to slip me a note? Um, that's just not available. And um, that's probably the biggest uh, detraction from this, this, this model for me. Um, but far preferable to not having the hearing at all. Yeah, you know, for sure. How about you? Have you done any, any of those? I, I've done a couple of bail hearings that way. And I have to say they were back when um, I was mostly acting as kind of duty counsel through the CLA, not since we've moved to a, this new remote model for our own clients. And it, it, that, exactly what you pick up on is sort of the challenge that I thought, especially where I didn't know these people prior to that day. These were new arrests who I was talking to for the first time. It, it is sort of a weird thing as a human being and as a lawyer to try to explain things to somebody fully over the phone and never be able to look them in the eye, never be able to sort of read their body language um, and to feel confident that you have instructions to proceed and they understand what's happening. I think it is a challenge and I found it, it, it really depends on the person, like someone who's a better communicator, it seemed fine. For someone who's a little bit shy or scared or young, who's you know, a one word answer guy, uh, it, it was a little unsettling. And I found myself spending a lot more time on the phone with them at the station being like, okay, repeat back to me what I said. Do you understand? And uh, more right. than I would have done if I was able to like pick up a vibe that they got what was going on. So, you know, it was, there are definitely challenges, I think. And we have to rethink how we interact with people and what we do to make sure that we're confident we have informed instructions and, and people know what's going on. So I agree with that. But, um, it's also made me realize I need, like similar to you, I need to be more concise. I need to think about what the most important things I need to say are. And for me, putting more of it, like making better written submissions. Um, I think especially at the trial level, sometimes I, I know that things change and there can be, like evidence will come out in a hearing and things will change the circumstances. So I, I not that I'm, I'm lazy in written submissions, but I always know I have an opportunity to tweak them up in oral and I think now there's going to be a lot more stuff happening in writing and so you need to put it all on the page and that's going to be a bit of a shift for me at least so focusing on in better written submissions I think. Yeah and one thing that really cheered me up actually that I thought was really uh, uh, heartwarming to, veering to adorable was the new CLA um, project <laughs> to team up tech savvy members of our bar with um, tech challenge members of our bar. Uh, so I read briefly about that in one of your communiques, uh, and you know, it instantly put a smile on my face. Maybe you could tell us a bit about that. 
Yeah, I, I so I have to say we, we've created a modernization committee within the CLA and I'm, I'm on that committee and, and Eric Neubauer gets a lot of credit for the Tech Helps initiative because he they correctly identified that we do have a lot of members and you know young and old who are not super tech savvy and that really hasn't been a big problem for them to date because it's a paper-based system and you can get away with being pretty old school um, but I don't think you can anymore so what we're trying to do is leverage resources we have ie people who understand things from like the basic to the complicated like someone to help you figure out ms styles to put a factum together that makes sense or organizing e-disclosure i know there are people who don't know how to extract pages from a pdf file to create an electronic motion record for example and that's going to be that's a core skill now and you can't just print all the pages assemble it physically and then upload it and scan it it's not going to be searchable so there's just all these kinds of skills that i think are now core competencies that weren't yeah. maybe i mean they were like starting to get there but not really mandatory and now they are mandatory overnight so we're trying to bridge that gap by we're going to release a series of like youtube how-to videos awesome. get get ready for my like dorky uh how do i make a hyperlink video that i'm sure will be on youtube in the next week or so um and then also having some like mentor groups over zoom where we walk people through things that we now have to do like download webex and conduct a video hearing or or you know how to create files that you can send to the court of appeal i know the court of appeal is now saying like anything you filed in the past two months go back and make it digital which if you did everything digital in the first place and you have all those files saved no big deal if that's not how your practice runs that's a pretty big ask so i think we're trying to help people in the most efficient way possible get up to speeds so that they can adapt to this new world that we're all living in in the courts so hopefully it'll be valuable to people um, if anyone has any good ideas about things that we should cover uh, they should definitely let me know and um, i'm hoping that the videos and the powerpoints and other things we're making are going to be valuable and, and certainly if people need a one-on-one -on -one mentor that's part of the plans that eventually you can have one of our team of tech wizards pick up the phone or get on a Zoom call with you and walk you through stuff. And it'll be personal one-to-one. So you don't have to worry about like, will everyone judge me for not knowing how to do this? It'll be like, no, just this one person will. And they're going to be very nice. <laughs> so it'll be all good. <laughs> but yeah, hopefully that will help a little bit. I love it. Uh, you know, I think, I think it falls into the category of good news stories that we, <laughs> we need to hear uh, right now. And um, I really don't want to minimize how much things fucking suck for everyone, <laughs> including the students that have lost their articling jobs and summer positions. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a struggle uh, for everyone to various, uh, in varying degrees. And uh, I don't want to minimize that, but I, I think that if we can kind of zero in on some of the good, good stuff, it'll help get us through uh, to oh, God knows what, July? June? I think it's better not to put an end date on it now. So I'm not going to be wildly disappointed when, you know, we're enjoying August long uh, living room beach party. So. All right. Well, thanks, Lisa. And I guess we'll get on with the rest of our show. We're now going to move into our advocacy quick fire, where Danielle and I ask each other short questions and give long rambling answers. Uh, so I guess, Danielle, why don't you start? Sure. I'm going to start by asking you a question, Lisa. Oh, good. Oh, good. 
<laughs> How? Give us your best tip for dealing with a difficult crown attorney. Uh, well, put it all in writing, I guess, is my lawyer answer. But it, no, in a practical sense, I find with crowns, the more time I spend building trust and I don't know, getting to know them a little bit, it tends to improve the relationship. I try very hard, and I say try because I'm sure I don't always succeed, but I try very hard not to stoop to the level of somebody who's just being an asshole because um, there are definitely crowns who can be very difficult to deal with and make you really frustrated, and I try my best not to stoop to their level. Um, but when the relationship gets truly degraded, I do find that making sure you don't get intimidated or back down or get so frustrated or frazzled that you're not advancing your client's interests properly, those are the most important things to avoid. And when all else fails, like I said, uh, put it all in writing. And the best advice I ever got about dealing with really difficult opposing counsel before I joined the criminal bar, because I think civil litigators are even more intense about this, is imagine every piece of correspondence between yourself and opposing counsel ending up as an exhibit to an affidavit in the court proceeding. So being failingly polite, always state your position fully and in its best possible light um, and expect that in reading that later, you'd be able to understand the context, what was going on and why you were in the right and you were more reasonable than the other side. God, we're always in complete agreement, Lisa. I, mm. I completely agree. Uh, what I would add is that it's sometimes useful to try to put yourself in the position of the crown, to try to imagine yourself uh, being uh, on that side of the litigation and the uh, constraints and pressures and incentives that are driving uh, your friend is a, a key part to kind of getting through difficult moments. The other thing to remember is we don't always have to agree. You know, I uh -huh. think some of us are really collegial and really prone to wanting to narrow the issues as far as conceivably possible. And sometimes that instinct can take you too far down a road um, that doesn't ultimately serve your client. And it's always good to know that if there's a dispute, that's why God made judges. You <laughs> just can litigate it. And uh, it's, good to, it's good to remember that. But, you know, some of my best friends are crowns. Really? <laughs> <laughs> Name names. Um, so, Danielle, I'm sure that you've had mentors in your career and you also mentor younger lawyers. What sort of quick fire tips do you have about building those relationships and what's the value of them in your opinion? Lisa, you know that my view is that these relationships are essential. Um, you know, it's essential to have mentors. It's uh, essential to mentor other lawyers. Uh, and I, I, I really think we've heard it from so many of our guests that, that it, that's the way you crack tough legal problems. Mm -hmm. You wade through difficult legal issues, um, ethical problems. Uh, you make your way through the profession. And I, I don't think it's possible without strong mentor-mentee relationships. And um, they, you, they're deeply fulfilling um, in both directions. And so mm -hmm. I, I don't think that was something I appreciated until I became a mentor to younger lawyers was how much I got out of those relationships and those experiences and how much the perspective of new calls added to my practice. Mm. Um, and, you know, e even things as basic as contemporary current language. <laughs> <laughs> what the kids are saying. Yeah. And, and, 
dating practices <laughs> and, um, you know, th- things that they are very alive to and, um, and can assist with. And I also think that the younger generation, the people that have been called in the last couple of years are coming into the profession, I, I think, with a, with a really healthy attitude about hmm. the balance between life and work um, and the centrality of health hmm. uh, to the longevity of their careers. And I think they have such a tremendous amount to add to our profession as a whole. And uh, I got so much out of being mentored, and I cannot believe how much I'm getting out of mentoring other young lawyers. Hmm. Looking for concise guidance on practical and procedural aspects of criminal law? How about resources that reflect both Crown and defense perspectives? Iman's award-winning criminal law series with general editors Brian Greenspan and Justice Rondinelli offer clear and detailed guidance on the most challenging areas of criminal practice. Learn more about Iman's criminal law series at iman.ca slash lawyers lounge criminal. For our listeners, Iman is offering 10% off. Just visit iman.ca lawyers lounge criminal and enter code lawyers lounge at checkout. Okay, so Lisa and I had this idea that we would award something called the Lounge Star of the Month Award. Uh, I, I think it's now becoming abundantly clear that we will not be awarding uh, one a month, so maybe we should rename the award. Uh, but we wanted to honor people that we thought deserved recognition for their work uh, in the administration of justice uh, across the country. And um, so take a listen. Jacques, you uh, graduated from Concordia University with a BA in journalism and a minor in French lit in 2013. You've been a staff reporter at the Toronto Star for almost seven years now. And on any measure, you are uh, in the first tier of what we hope is a very, very long career as a journalist. And you've established yourself as the go-to, the key journalist in Ontario covering the justice system. A sampling of the stories you've covered in, say, just the last 20 months uh, include issues of professional witnesses like officers and experts testifying dishonestly, the disciplining of judges and JPs, lawyers, doctors, and other health professionals, the diversification of the legal profession and efforts of equity-seeking groups to break in, the inhumane and deplorable conditions at the Toronto South Detention Centre, the presentation of graphic evidence in court, the legal aid cuts, system delays to trial, the persistent problem of quality interpreters in court, the appointment process for judges, and discrimination against women in the PPSC and in big law firms, the uh, intriguing question of whether we should be wearing robes in court, uh, the abuse of articling students, segregation in prison, carding, and the lack of courtroom space in Brampton. You've consistently demonstrated that you are willing and prepared to turn your big spotlight on systemic issues facing both the justice system in Ontario and the bar, our profession. In the process, your writing shows you have a deep and sensitive knowledge and understanding of the issues facing criminal lawyers, crowns, judges, and the people who come before the court. 
you've resisted sensationalizing the stories or fetishizing the criminal accused or the victim. Your writing is focused on things that criminal lawyers are always thinking about, and it's like you're reading our minds. My favorite headline in the last few months, judges and crowns regularly send still innocent people to places like the Toronto South Detention Center. Should they have to know what that feels like? It's my, so good. Such a good headline, Jacques. And so for those reasons, and many more, Lisa and I are unanimous in our decision to award you, Jacques Gallant, the very first Lounge Star of the Month award for your dogged coverage of the systemic legal issues in Ontario. Welcome. I mean, you've had a chance to do a pretty deep dive into the justice system. What has surprised you the most about what you've learned? Um, well, like, for one thing, that it's a really antiquated system. Mm. I mean, that's something that I wasn't really prepared for, that uh, pretty much every other facet of our lives is very digital. You can do online banking, for example, or, like, your medical records. Uh, doctors can do a lot online now. But with the courts, it's so heavily paper-based still. So that was a big surprise because I, I've been able to explore that a bit in stories that I've done on like delay in the criminal justice system, for example, and how the lack of technology has contributed to that. Um, another example would be like um, how the, the it's not necessarily a level playing field in the system, in the criminal mm -hmm. justice system specifically. That's kind of been a big surprise. Like I'm thinking of uh, like lack of funding for legal aid, for example. But you often hear of governments, both conservative and liberal, will increase funding for police, for example, or in the face of uh, chronic delays in the system, they'll hire more judges and they'll hire more prosecutors, but they won't increase funding to legal aid. In fact, some governments will cut funding to legal aid. So that, that has kind of been um, kind of a surprise as well and something that I've been exploring and would like to explore more yeah you're someone who has done a number of stories focused on the bar the profession itself and challenges within the profession mm -hmm. why have you chosen to focus on some of those issues and how do you learn about them uh well again it's like sometimes it's like seeing what lawyers are talking about on social media and getting the examples from there like one uh well the story idea about the uh, women lawyers and lawyers of color who are often confused in court for anyone but lawyers. Mm -hmm. I think that also came from law some lawyers just tweeting amongst each other about it. And then I reached out to them and I was very happy that they were willing to speak with me and share their experiences. And I decided to do those stories to kind of show that um, like discrimination can still exist in basically any profession and right. it's worth shining a light on. And uh, I remember like one lawyer putting it to me in that story saying, well, if crowns and clerks can't even imagine that you're a lawyer, he, this, was a, this was a lawyer of color, then yeah. who will? Like what, is that, what kind of message does that send to the public or to people of color or to women who are considering becoming lawyers? So I, that was a story that I was really, uh, one of the stories I was really proud of doing last year. You know, I think we're all frustrated by the antiquated nature of the system and that we're chasing paper constantly. Like literally chasing paper like from literally. to courtroom. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, if that's going to change, it's going to require such a massive investment. And I think the thing that's always striking me about your stories is, you know, it's what Lisa and I are worried about and we think about all the time. And I, 
and I, I don't know if I'm just become jaded in my old age, but like, does anyone care? Does anyone care about these big problems that you're focusing on? Does, does the public care about legal aid cuts, for example? It's a good question. It can sometimes feel like no. It, do, it does feel like that sometimes, that no one cares, that people really care about health or education, um, transportation. But justice, uh, it's, it's difficult sometimes when you're, the, when you're the justice reporter feeling like no one seems to care. But I know that people certainly do seem to care, for example, when uh, underfunding of the system leads to cases being tossed due to delay. Things mm. like that absolutely anger the public. And I can remember doing a story, I think it was last year at the opening of the courts where the three chief justices all kind of, all came out strongly against the legal aid cuts. That ended up being the most read story on our website that day, which wow. was a surprise to me. Like people really were interested in reading that. And I think my impression was the Ford government certainly got more backlash from the public than I think they might have been expecting to the to the legal aid cut, the big one last year. And then, of course, they walked back the cut that, that was supposed to be implemented this year. So it, it can be really difficult to get the public to care because so many members of the public, I think, probably believe, well, I'm never going to be in, like charged with a crime or involved in the system. I don't right. care. It's very difficult. And of course, anyone who's caught up in the criminal justice system sometimes is already labeled a criminal even before actually being convicted. So people yep. then dismiss them as well as just criminals. They're not, it's not worth our attention or time. So it can be very frustrating and difficult to get the public's attention on to focus on things like that, like technology in the courts, for example. I remember interviewing uh, Chief Justice uh, Smith when she was retiring last year from the Superior Court, and that was her biggest um, her biggest frustration was the lack of funding from various governments over the years, liberal and conservative, no funding for technology. But it's very difficult to get the public riled up about yeah. the court's need Wi-Fi and they need digital informations. And so do you think that the, the traction that that story got uh, where all three chief justices spoke out, do you think, like, I guess my theory would be that actually the Canadian public has tremendous respect for the judiciary and when they speak out, people will listen? Do you think that's why? Or yeah, I think, I think that, yeah, I think that could be part of it because I do think that people take, like a judge is taken very seriously and um, they don't speak out that often to right. begin with. Like right. it, was a, it was kind of a rare thing to hear all three of them come out so strongly against the cuts in such a public way. Uh, and I do think people kind of listen more carefully and more attentively when, it, when a judge is speaking, for sure. So I, I think that, kind of, that sent a really strong message. And like I said, it was really, it was, I remember getting the advance remarks in the morning before the ceremony in the afternoon and being really surprised that all three of them went pretty hard. Yeah. yeah. It was really shocking, yeah. What is your biggest frustration doing this work? Uh, I guess there are a few main areas. Like, one is, like, trying to access exhibits <laughs> in the courts or just dealing with court staff. Um, they're not always very nice. <laughs> um... <laughs> 
they don't always seem to be aware of like the rules around what's public or the open courts principle. You know, it's like the Supreme Court can talk about the open courts principle and it's a really lofty goal. But I mean, in the lower courts, it's not really the experience of a lot of people trying to access Mm -hmm. things, especially journalists. Um, So that's one big area of frustration. And I know the courts are aware of it and have done their best to try to improve the situation. But there's only so much that they can do. Sometimes they've said, well, some of it is the ministry of the attorney general. So it's their staff and maybe they should be making sure that the staff are aware of, for example, I can, I can think of courthouses where they would, when, I, when I'm calling for a copy of the information in a case, they won't take the request over the phone. It has to be faxed. And courthouses <laughs> yes. love faxes. <laughs> yeah. And then, of course, I said, so I guess when you get this fax, you'll fax the information back to me then, I guess. No. And it was, <laughs> no, you have to drive to, uh, I'll just out them. You have to drive to Newmarket to pick it up. Or we'll mail it to you. How, how many so, weeks would that take, though? Probably, like, <laughs> yeah, like, up. To, well, one time, again, at the same courthouse, I had been told it would take up to six weeks to process mm-hmm. my request for one information. I, I think things may have improved now, but, um, like, there's, they, they have a job to do, I have a job to do, and they're really, really busy, so I can't expect them at the same time, of course, to kind of push everything aside to handle my request for a copy of an information, for example. But right. it's like there, there's no desire to get to process that at all expeditiously. Mm-hmm. So that's really frustrating because, of course, we're on deadlines and, and oftentimes things like a copy of the information is the most basic information about a case and, it, and it's to ensure the accuracy of your reporting. And sometimes it can be really difficult to do that without those key documents. So that's one big frustration. Another one is that... Um, when reporting on the criminal system, defense lawyers love to talk, and I love to talk to defense <laughs> lawyers, um, but I cannot get any crown to talk to me. So if there are any right. crowns listening, please give me a call. Send me an email. I mean, I know that crowns can't generally talk on the record. I completely understand that, but I would love to do stories about issues that are important to crown attorneys or or a story that I'm already working on, but I could get a crown perspective in it. It's very, very difficult. So sometimes stories end up being one-sided because you just can't get the other side to talk. They right. have an association, but they haven't, their last few presidents, I, I, I haven't been able to get on the phone or respond to an email in years. So that's a big frustration. You've got the Criminal Lawyers Association who's very vocal and very happy to do media. And you have the Crown Attorneys Association who just doesn't seem to want to do media so it's really difficult sometimes because I want I want those perspectives in my stories and I want to know what are the big issues that uh crowns have in the courts are they overstaffed overworked I certainly hear that they are but it's difficult to do those stories if they won't talk to you it's such a frustration for us as well because one of the big pieces of misinformation out there is that we are totally partisan and opposed all the time and that you know the crowns are in one camp Mm -hmm. and the defense counsel are in another camp and I think if they would talk to you what you'd find is that we're aligned on most of these issues you know the crowns want legal aid funding as much as defense counsel want legal aid funding like you know we all would love to have a digitization of the information Mm -hmm. before the court you know, th- there's so much commonality on these big system issues. And sometimes I think if we did hear from them, 
um, maybe the public would take the the concerns more seriously. Yeah, I agree. I think they would see that everyone involved in the system uh, is kind of on is on the same page with some of these issues, and it's not just defense lawyers whining about something. Right. Like everyone actually thinks this is a, a major issue that needs to be resolved. Yeah. And that's why I think it's surprising when judges sometimes talk because it's like, whoa, they never say anything. But Crown attorneys, very difficult. Well, that's that's really too bad. So hopefully all the Crowns <laughs> listening uh, will pick up the phone yes, and give you a call, call tomorrow. Me. Yes. Do you sometimes cringe when you read stories from other journalists about court cases and they just they really just don't have any clue about what's going on usually um not reading but like watching uh tv like tv news reports (laughs) yeah absolutely like definitely and and like there's some really great tv reporters out there as well no question but in my from from my recollection it's just like the questions that are sometimes asked at, at court or at the scene of a crime and then also what ends up getting put on TV or online. Yeah, absolutely cringeworthy. I don't want to like say anything specific because it might out people, but um, they're definitely like, I've heard some really ridiculous questions in the past asked asked by reporters and then it's, and, and and they don't know what's going on. Who's the, who's that judge? And it's like, no, that's not a judge. That's a JP. Well, is he going to get bailed today? No, it's his first appearance. It's not a bail hearing. Like, and, and, and like, so it, it can get cringeworthy. But I just don't say anything. It's like if if they if someone else in the public wants to point out their errors, it's up to them to correct it. But yeah, I definitely cringe sometimes. Is there ever like a push to push you into just like beat reporting? And just doing like reporting trial after trial, like how do you how do you manage this ivory tower that you've built for yourself? Well, it's an <laughs> it's an interesting position that I'm in because um, the Star has two court reporters who cover who are yeah. based at 361 and cover all the tri- like all the trials, motions, pre-trials, bail hearings, everything. And then sometimes we have general assignment reporters who go out to cover things like that too when needed. I rarely have to go to court to cover an actual hearing of any kind. And, like, there was someone in my position before me for, like, years. I never met her because she actually passed away just before I started at Mm. the Star, Tracy Tyler. She was the Star's legal affairs reporter up until 2012, and I think since the late 80s. So it's a position that's always exist that's existed for a long time at the Star, and maybe it's specific to the Star, but it's it's a position where it was decided that they needed someone who would write on like systemic issues in the justice system and, um, and, ex- and who could have the time to explore those issues and not have to spend all of their time actually in a courtroom. Cause that is a really time. I mean, I really like salute my two colleagues in court because I have covered trials and hearings over the years and that takes a lot of time and energy to sit there all day and to take an, a, a, a copious amounts of notes. And then at 4.30 when court's over for the day, you've got to cram all that into a 15-inch story within an hour or so to get it up online. And you have to do that every day for a long trial. So that's a, it, it's a lot of work. And I'm glad I've never had to do it on a regular basis. Yeah. 
<laughs> and I don't think I will have to, not in this position. You mentioned the open court principle earlier. How do you, as a journalist, or how do journalists in general, strike a balance between letting the public know what's going on in the court system and not sensationalizing things or piling on in some cases, particularly where the people before the courts are presumed innocent? How do you strike that balance? Um, well, so again, it's like it, it, it's hard to speak for all media outlets because I know some media in the past have been criticized for sensationalizing. I, can, I guess I can only speak for myself, which is I mm-hmm. definitely do try to avoid that as much as possible, like keeping in mind that the person is presumed innocent. And uh, even with um, like in, in victim impact statements, for example, that it's read in open court and they're public documents, but I won't necessarily always mention like I, I can think of, especially in like some gruesome sexual assault cases, for example, the victims get very, very personal and, and specific about what was done to them. And even though it was read in open court, uh, it's extremely tra- it can be incredibly traumatizing for people to have to do that. And um, I, I think you're able to paraphrase. You don't have to quote verbatim. Mm-hmm. You don't have to write at length on what was said. You can kind of give an overview, kind of communicate the emotion that was being felt in the courtroom, things like that. Because, um, yeah, at the end of the day, it's that the, the judge needs to hear everything and you want the public to know what was going on in court, but it doesn't have to be down to every single minute little detail. So I, so I do try to avoid sensationalizing as much as possible. A lot of paraphrasing, yeah. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I think that's really responsible. Yeah. Yeah, it's on journalists to do that, too, I would say. It's a, it's a duty that journalists should really take seriously when covering court cases, especially criminal. How does it work? Like, we have uh, mentors, you know? Like, we all of us have um, mentors who are senior members of the bar to go to to figure out those tough questions. Like, that seems to me like a pretty difficult judgment call in some cases. Are are journalists the same? Like, do you have senior mentors that you can go to with with those sorts of things? Or this is just instinct, man? Uh, it's like instinct mixed with, like, whatever your boss tells you to do. <laughs> like, um, the mentors would be great, but no, there aren't. I don't, I certainly don't have any, and I don't, I never really did. I mean, when we were in, when I was an intern at the Star, when I started the Star years ago, it was like a general assignment intern. They paired us off with a, senior reporter who we met with each a couple times but there's no one there's no like senior reporter at the star who I could go to and say um I don't know about this that came up in court today what do you think or like this publication ban should we challenge that things like that it's really um judgment calls on your own but also talking with editors like I have some good editors at the star and um very very open to discussing and trying to and they're pretty flexible too and um knowledgeable so it's a lot of talk it it, it involves a lot of discussion sometimes with editors how can we help you do your job how can we make it easier for you to cover the courts um let me think send me every juicy court decision (laughs) um (laughs) like call me seriously um uh, send me like if there's something that you think needs to be uh, exposed in the system and that you're really frustrated about it's been happening for a while you don't think anything's being done about it let me know like not every 
story that's unfortunately it probably no surprise to you but not every story that's important to lawyers can turn into a story in the newspaper because it's just of no interest to the public whatsoever (laughs) but I do try to make as many stories as possible that may not on the face of it be of interest to the public I do try to turn them into stories that will be of interest to the public so one thing I'll often ask lawyers when I'm doing a story that's kind of that can seem kind of in the weeds like legal aid cuts and 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 the criminal lawyers saying that the bureaucracy at LAO was bloated and they should be cutting there like all these kinds of things that seem to be really insular I'll always ask them okay but why should the public care why is this important right. to the public it was like the judicial appointment story when I was leaked uh, a proposal earlier this year that the AG's office had been floating around about how they wanted to revamp the process and a lot of People said this looks like it's going to allow the government to make patronage appointments. But it's like it's obvious to me why that's a big deal, but not necessarily to a, an ordinary member of the public. So I asked everyone who I interviewed, every defense lawyer, every head of a legal organization. But why should the public care? Why is this bad? Why if you're saying this is bad? Is it bad for the public? Why? So I think that's something that lawyers should keep in mind. It's that please send me your story ideas and I'd be happy to explore them, but also keep in mind that the audience is the public. It's not the Law of Times as the Toronto Star. <laughs> right. So I, it's always at the back of my mind is I have to remember, like, why should the public care about this? So lawyers can really be helpful if they can uh, explain that to me for a particular story. Yeah. I think, I think that's everything we wanted to cover. Is there anything you want to say for the tape? Uh, <laughs> no, just happy to be here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Crowns call me. Judges <laughs> judges call me too. Actually, I hear more from judges than crowns, but... You do not. I do. I've got a couple judge cell phone numbers, actually. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'd rather... You'll never I tell. Mean, yeah, I'll never say <laughs> who. Some very chatty judges, though. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Crown attorneys. But crown attorneys. Ball in your court. Yeah, where are you? <laughs> Thanks so much for doing this. Thank you. Are you a practitioner who works on cases involving drug-related offenses? Prepare yourself for every situation with Prosecuting and Defending Drug Cases, a Practitioner's Handbook by Nathan Gorham, Brianna Vandebeek, and Jeremy Streeter. Learn what you need to know about the Cannabis Act, adeptly navigate Garofoli applications, get insights from prosecution and defense perspectives, and more. Order your copy today at iman.ca slash drug cases. For our listeners, Iman is offering 10% off. Just visit iman.ca slash drug cases and enter code lawyers lounge at checkout. We want to thank Jacques Gallant for uh, his time and insight today. Um, and want to tell you a bit about the next episode. Uh, jam-packed. You're going to hear from the formidable Michael Lacey. And we have two up-and-coming stars that you'll hear from as well, uh, two uh, Hicks Adams uh, articling students. So stay tuned for the next episode. The Lawyer's Lounge is produced, engineered, and edited by Alex Ross of Never Sleeps Network. Directed and published by Dana Hawes and marketing by Jordan Bloom. My name is Paul Emond. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Lawyer's Lounge. We at Emond Publishing are committed to providing best-in-class criminal law content, including our award-winning criminal law series, edited by Brian Greenspan and Justice Rondinelli, new initiatives like The Lawyer's Lounge podcast, 
as well as our EMOND exam prep resources and criminal law casebooks for law students.